Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the stories that don't make the news. Today, I am welcoming Detective Britt Kelly, who has been on the Seattle Police Department for 13 years. Britt was in patrol for five, bikes for three, and currently she is with the force investigation team. Britt also is a survivor of an ambush attack that occurred on October 31st, 2009. The attack took the life of her field training officer, Timothy Brenton, and wounded her. We will talk about that traumatic incident, what kept her going, and why she chose to remain committed to law enforcement. We'll talk about her career, and we'll begin with her new passion project, which is to honor all officers the department has lost in the line of duty. Britt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Like with my previous interview with a Seattle police sergeant, Drew Hancock, I also know you. I met you about the same time I met him, about 12 years ago. And I recently had the opportunity to talk with you again because I learned of sort of a passion, what I would call a passion project you have embarked on to honor line of duty deaths in your department. Yes, so I want to talk about your project, but also the very personal connection you have to this project. Sure. Absolutely. Love to. So tell me, you want to start with how you, what your inspiration was behind the project and then your connection to it? Well, um, Tim Brenton was a 2009 line of duty death for us, and he has a memorial at his site, which is personal to me because I was involved in his death. Uh, this memorial was implemented, gosh, it would have been probably, I, I, I guess it was completed by the first year anniversary. So he was killed on October 31st, 2009. So it was about October 31st, 2010, that this memorial had been implemented. And it was a great collaboration of donations and community coming together and making this beautiful memorial that was at the location next to the sidewalk. So I guess it was just over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, I happened to be in that neighborhood and decided to drive by and and just honor Tim and and check out the memorial. And when I drove by, uh, unfortunately, the uh, memorial was not well maintained. And so it started off as just a project of wanting to make sure that this memorial was maintained. Um, And from that, it kind of grew to thinking about other police memorials that we have for our line of duty death officers. And it dawned on me that the only other one uh, that has a memorial is Antonio Terry. Uh, And he died, I believe it was in 1994. It hurt my heart, to be quite honest. It hurt my heart for the families that we've had uh, Lexi Harris, who who just died last year in, in 2021. And we had Jose Barber. Right. That was right after I moved here in 2006. And uh, right before that was Jackson Lone in 2005, who was in the Harbor unit. Right. And so we've had many other line of duty deaths that don't have any sort of memorial. And so I I took it upon myself to to try to see about what it would take to get something implemented 
either at the locations that these officers lost their lives or somewhere where family and community could come together to honor these officers and hold true to to the sentiment that the department always says we will not forget. So that was kind of the the impetus of where it began and it's still a bit in its infancy. Well, and for those who know you, they know when you say you were involved in Tim's death, you were the officer who was in training in the squad car. Yes, uh, I was with Tim. I was a student officer at the time and uh, he was my field training officer and we were just parked on the side of the street he was in the passenger seat and for all intents and purposes i i should not be here today the bullets that were fired from the suspect were intended for me as much as for tim it just is by the the grace of god that i'm still here and, and sadly unfortunately you know, tim did not survive the ambush but i was with him in the car that evening when he got killed. Well, you got shot and you had the presence of mind to exit the vehicle. I did. And I kind of learned a lot of this stuff after the fact, a, a lot of training because uh, of the unit I'm in now, I've gotten to go through some amazing training. Some of it I knew, of course, because in at Academy, they prepare you a little bit for going through very stressful and traumatic incidents. And the way the body reacts under high levels of stress to that extent is really quite amazing. I think I was on my, if I recall, about my 20th shift ever in my career at the night that this happened. So I really had nothing to fall back on. I have no military background. The only training I ever got was the 19 weeks that I had in academy. And it's just amazing that I went into absolutely just autopilot. I had conscious thought that it was happening because I could smell the gunpowder, the flash of the of the muzzle, the sound of the gunfire. I mean, it was so incredibly loud, as you can imagine. And just all of it combined just kind of fired me into, into acting. I mean, I my initial reaction, luckily, was that I, I ducked out of the way. Um, so I had two grazing wounds, one on my back, one on my head. It was when the gunfire stopped that I then uh, was able to exit the vehicle and return fire. And I remember you said that for a moment there, you couldn't figure out why Tim wasn't helping you. Yes, yes. I was angry. I was actually really, really angry that he, I had got out of the car, returned fire. The suspect was in a vehicle uh, when he did this. He was in a vehicle and, and he had taken off after he ambushed us. And so I was actually firing at a, a fleeing vehicle. Tim wasn't getting out of the car and wasn't helping me. And for people who are familiar with the, the field training process, you know, as as the trainee, you're expected to handle things and, and you're the one doing everything. So in my head, I actually had the thought that I was like, hey, listen, I know this is on me and I know I'm supposed to be the one like taking care of business, but dear Lord, like, like, do you think you can help me? Like, isn't this the kind of exigent circumstances that maybe you can help me out a little? So yeah, I was actually, I was mad. <laughs> I was mad that he wasn't helping me. And it wasn't until the suspect was out of sight that I took further cover. And it was at that point when I went, I took cover into the 
in in front of our patrol vehicle because the, the car fled to the north of us. And so I took cover in front of our vehicle. And that's when I realized I'd looked in the windshield and realized that there was a reason that Tim wasn't helping me. He was unfortunately at that point already deceased. Such a tragedy. I can't imagine that moment for you, though you have said to me that you do not hold a visual of that. Your mind has protected you from that. It has. And it's, again, stuff that I kind of learned subsequent to this incident. The The body is just so amazing with what it can do and how it can handle trauma. And in this case, I'm so blessed and lucky that my mind has actually blocked out the visual of what I saw in the windshield at that moment. And the only the only reason I, I know what I saw is because I uh, was able to listen to the radio transmissions that I made mm-hmm. to uh, dispatch over air. And so that's how I know what I saw in, in that windshield. Uh, unfortunately, I went on air and, and asked them to, to send, I think I even said send medical, which is a weird terminology. Usually we ask to send fire, but I said, send medical. I said, my partner's dead. And it's interesting to me that I referred to Tim as my partner, because again, as a trainee, anybody who's been through field training knows that you are a, you are a trainee and your, your FTO is your FTO. You're not partners. You are not, you know, while I was a commissioned officer, I still had to earn my right, I, you know, to be an officer and have a partner, if you will. So just very interesting to me that under stress that I would have referred to Tim as my partner, that I said send medical and that I referenced over air, send medical, my, my partner's mm-hmm. dead. So not nothing uh, and, and, and honestly again I I would have bet <laughs> a large sum of money that I had said because I even put it in my statement that I had said send fire officer down is what I believed I said on air right so right. so when you get this out over air then everybody's coming right I mean you had to hear the sirens mm-hmm you were afraid that this guy was after you, right? You were hiding because you thought he was coming back for you. Yes. Well, you know, I thankfully uh, the dispatcher that was on air that night, she did an amazing job. She's no longer with our communications department, but she was just awesome to put out a help the officer pretty much right away without me even having to, to say or ask for that, I should say. And so I did know that the, the cavalry was coming. The interesting thing is that, yes, everybody across the city, because I believe the airs were patched at that point, because I think the help the officer was already called out. Everybody heard me say over air, my partner's dead. And so I think people hope that, you know, it wasn't true. But to hear somebody say that over air is it was really traumatic for, for other officers to hear that. I knew... I believed, I should say, that because this person who just tried to kill us obviously had to have heard the gunfire of me shooting at him. And being that I actually hit his car with gunfire, you know, he he knew that he hadn't killed both of us, or at least one of us was still somewhat alive. It was my fear and belief 
that since we weren't even engaging in any activity at that point, like we weren't, hadn't made a traffic stop, we, we weren't contacting some people, you know, on foot, there was, there was nothing that instigated this, it was just a sheer ambush. So that being the case, I felt like, okay, this, this person wanted us dead, we were essentially being hunted. So it was my belief that, well, I just gave up the fact that I'm not dead, or at least one of us isn't dead. So I thought he would circle back around the block and come back around to to finish the job, if you will. And so I did not want to stay near the patrol car because I thought it would be obvious that that's where this guy would come back to. So I did. I went into a, it was a parking lot. It was a small parking lot to like an apartment building, I should say. And so I did. I ran up into that parking lot and, and took cover between a couple of parked cars where I could have line of sight on the street without being visible, if you will. And then arriving officers, what happens? Somebody tends to use, somebody goes to the car. I mean, what was that like? I have a little bit of, well, I want to say guilt, but I guess it gives me a little consternation when I think about this portion. When I took cover, like I said, I, I had a lot of sight to the, to the street. I saw officers start to arrive and two patrol cars kind of came pretty quick back to back. And I saw, ironically, one of the other vehicles was actually another training officer with a, a student. And then uh, a, the other vehicle was a, a solo officer. The officers, rightly so, arrive on scene. And where are they going to go? They're going to go to the patrol car natural thing. And so what was in the patrol car, the passenger seat, but Tim dead. And I, when I saw them arrive, I did not give up my location. I saw them. They had no idea where I was. Again, I was taking cover. I felt I was being hunted. It hurts my heart to think about these officers running up to a patrol car and seeing their squad mate dead and how hard, how hard that must've been. And I eventually gave up my location because I, I, I think I heard them asking, where is she? Where is she in reference to me, of course. And I think, I don't remember what I said. I don't know if I said I'm up here or, or whatnot, but one of the officers then came running to me and I was still taking cover. I was down either in a squatting position or down on a knee. I don't totally remember, but I was low. And so the officer came up was standing next to me and I heard one of the officers down on the street yell, is she injured? And at that point I felt the the wound across my head, my head hurt. And so I, I said to the officer next to me, I said, my head hurts. And I hear him yell back to the other officer, she's been hit in the back. And I thought to myself, well, crap, I don't feel that hmm. one yet. It was at that point that they knew I needed to, they needed to do what we call a buddy check and, and make sure, because I obviously wasn't even aware of that. So they needed to kind of do the buddy check to see what other holes I might have that I just wasn't aware of. So they had me holster and, and go down to the, to the street, to the medic <laughs> unit. And then you had to, I mean, there's so much going on at this point. You had to go to the hospital. You have to give statements. You told me when I saw you recently that you had to talk to a lawyer and I didn't understand why you would need to talk to a lawyer because I thought it was only if there's deadly force, you explained to me that anytime you fire a weapon, you have. So you've got 
trauma and interviews and injury, how are you managing all that? You know, I, I, I don't know that I was, you know, like, I mean, I just, I think at that point I was just numb, quite frankly. It's funny because you, you say, well, I didn't, I didn't know you'd have to have an, an attorney and such. Well, neither did I. <laughs> I had, I had no yeah. idea what was going on. I mean, you know, they, they tell you this stuff and, you know, you're four and a half months in academy and you're just getting fed from a fire hose, all this information from tactics to criminal law, to defensive tactics, to the physical fitness part. There's just so many pieces that, you know, you're just, and you're, you're getting really kind of almost like the top level and you just, you're taking this in as fast as you can. Well, then you graduate academy and we go in Seattle, we go and then we, we do six more weeks of what we call post academy, where it's more Seattle specific stuff. So now you're, you're drinking from that same fire hose, but it's just a little bit, like at a deeper level. So here you've just spent, you know, so what's up, like six months, just taking in all this information. And I'm sure at some point, they explained to us about how you have an attorney and such. But in the scheme of things, I was like, that's not going to be on a test. I don't need to remember that, to be quite honest. You know, like, I'll deal with that. And, you know, 20 years into my career, if I get into a shooting, you know, I think it's kind of the thought process you have. So when all of a sudden this was happening, you know, so so close to, to getting out of our post-academy, so yeah, I was at the, I, I got to the hospital again. I didn't know anybody. That was probably the hardest part. I didn't know anybody and people wanted to be consoling, but it was like awkward. Obviously they're devastated that their squad mate who they did know no. was deceased and killed in such a gruesome way. And so it was just this, this horrible mess of, of emotion from like everybody that was there. Cause uh, tons of officers were there. I don't know, honestly know if they were primarily from his precinct, which was the East precinct. I, I don't even know to be quite frank. I didn't know anybody though. I didn't know anybody. I remember the interim chief of police that we had at the time showed up at the hospital. Of course, I believe the, the mayor at the time showed up or maybe it was even one of the city council. I don't know. They were all like, talking to me and telling me who they were. And I just kept shaking my head. And honestly, all I thought in my head is none of this matters. I quit anyway. <laughs> it was organized probably from an outsider's point of view of what was going on at the hospital. But in my head, it was sheer chaos. Yeah. Right. Wait, so at some point you get to go home and people started sending you cards and letters and flowers and Facebook messages and you would sitting, I think your words were sitting in the dark in my apartment with my box of stuff. But you would sit in the dark, right? You were still afraid. So tell me about the dark and the box of stuff. The suspect wasn't apprehended. Yes, I, I, I eventually got to leave the hospital. It, this happened at 10 o'clock at night. The incident happened. Tim got killed about 10 o'clock at night. So I think I left the hospital probably around six in the morning. Oh, geez. I had just uh, gone to my house and packed up some some clothes and went to a, a family member's house that lived in North Seattle, just went to just at least be with somebody. I eventually went back to my house and it was probably, I don't know, a day or two later. And 
the suspect still had not been apprehended. I don't know what it was about the darkness. I, I don't know if it was actually the darkness or just the idea that, you know, when you're outside at night and somebody has a light on inside of a home, you can easily see in, right? But when you're inside the house and the light's on and it's dark out, you can't see out, right? And so I just had this paranoia that I was being hunted and watched and I just was too scared. So I used to keep the lights off, even though I had the department was kind enough to put um, patrol officers outside my house 24 seven. So I had eyes in, in ears, if you will, outside my house with physical officers outside my house and patrol cars and, and such. But I just didn't trust. I would not turn on the lights. I would not walk by windows. And I was just absolutely paranoid. And I started very quickly getting cards and, you know, because I guess, sadly, it seems that officers being ambushed is not uncommon anymore. But in 09, when this happened, this was unheard of. And so it made national news pretty quick. And so I got cards from citizens and departments and officers all over. And it was, it was super heartwarming. And so I would sit just on the floor. I ended up getting this box. And I think the box was actually originally given to me by our mail or data center or whoever, because it was just a, a, a box that copy paper comes in. <laughs> and so they, they, I think, would bring me my mail in that. And so I just kept that that box and I would I decided to sit and just read through these letters and these cards and these sentiments that were sent to me. And so um, it was definitely part of, I guess, part of the, the grieving and healing process that I went through. And you still have it. Oh, I do. I do. It might even be the same box <laughs> now I think about it. I think it might be. And it's it's absolutely overflowing. It, it's gained uh, even more memorabilia, if you will, over the subsequent years that have gone on. I don't go through it super often, but I definitely will sit and, and take my time and go through it just to, you know, do my part of never forgetting. And it's just cathartic and it's part again of, of continuing to heal. Yeah. I th- think I heard you say a minute ago that you quit. <laughs> Is that what you, so clearly you didn't. What gave you? <laughs> <laughs> clearly I didn't. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> what gave you the strength to go on? So when I was at the scene, right, when everything happened and I mentioned that an officer came up and found me and had, you know, noticed that I was shot and, you know, had me stand up to go down and go to the medic unit, he told me, go ahead and holster your weapon. And so I holstered my weapon and we have the retentions, of course, that are on our duty holsters. And they make, you know, the clicking sound when when they secure, if you will. Mine's a, a level three. And so I click and click, I heard. And when I heard that second click and I knew my, my gun was secure and I, w- I was no longer going to be responsible for for taking care of business. That's when the waterworks came on. I just started crying and 
I threw my hands up in the air. I walked away from everybody. And for the sake of keeping this clean, I will say I said a naughty word that begins with F. It, I quit. I threw my hands up and walked off. And they pretty much had to chase me down at that point to get me to, you know, come back to the medic unit. And, and like I said, do the buddy check. So I held the mantra in my head that I was quitting for, gosh, you know what? It was until, uh, so this happened on a Saturday night. If I remember right, that Friday was Tim's memorial at what was then Key Arena. And it's standard procedure in line of duty deaths. They do the procession. And so the procession for Tim was going from UW, uh, University of Washington, over to uh, Key Arena. And I was riding with what became one of my greatest friends was my first field training officer that I had. She was like the only person I knew on the darn department, to be quite frank, but she was amazing. So I was riding with her. And I remember we were riding the procession. We had just left the UW parking lot and it was a big procession and we're riding along and getting goosebumps just thinking about this and telling you this story right now. And I remember we started riding along down Montlake in Seattle, Montlake Boulevard. And there was these two little boy scouts, but they were adorable in their, in their little uniforms. And they stood there. Oh God, this is, and they were saluting and they were saluting the car and it was just so heartwarming. And it literally was at that moment. I remember turning to Lynn, my field training officer, she was driving the car and I said, I don't want to quit. This is the best job I could have ever done. And so it was literally at that moment that I just decided, "Mm -mm, I'm not going to get derailed. It's going to take more than this. And so I never looked back from that moment. That's a great story. I'm sure glad you stuck around. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Uh, um, it's hard to move on from there. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just to, I, I know we have a lot to talk about, but what people in the Seattle area know, other people in other markets may not know, which four weeks after this happened, there were four officers also ambushed and killed in a city called Lakewood, south of Seattle. And this is by a different killer, not the killer in your incident, walks into a coffee shop on a Sunday morning and shoots the four of them sitting there. And I want to say their names because it's always the Lakewood four, but in alphabetical order, it's Officer Tina Griswold, Officer Ronald Owens, Sergeant Mark Renninger, Officer Gregory Richards. So it was, it was like, you know, police were being hunted. I mean, you talked a few minutes ago about feeling hunted. You were being hunted. The entire profession. And it was unlike anything, as you said, anyone had experienced. Okay, this is, you're supposed to be the emotional one. <laughs> Trust me, I'm holding back. I'm holding back. That's why I wore mascara, so that I know even though this is, nobody can see, at least, uh, you know, the mascara keeps me from trying to tear up. It was at that time, like I said, it, it breaks my heart to think that it's not as odd of, a, of an idea now yeah. that officers, you know, get ambushed. 
but then it was, it was the fact that this happened to Tim. And then, like you said, four weeks later, that not, you know, not even four weeks later, you know, all of a sudden we have four officers who get killed by one suspect who comes into a coffee shop while they're having coffee. Like it just was, it was impossible to wrap your, your brain around. And after that, I know that Seattle PD definitely at that point, I think thought, uh Oh, Britt may have been able to withstand the incident with Tim, but this is going to push her over. Like, you know, this is going to be triggering or, or whatever their thoughts were. It was a rough time. It was a really rough time to be an officer in the Pacific Northwest at that point. Do you remember where you were when you got the news of the Lakewood officers? I do. I do. Gosh, it was, (laughs) I remember I was actually sitting in a Starbucks and I was having coffee with a friend and my cell phone rang and I saw that it was one of our assistant chiefs and he had kept a pulse on me and he was pretty involved in kind of being a liaison for Tim's family and such. And so it wasn't odd that he would be calling me, but at the same time, it was odd that he was calling me. And I answered and he said, are you all right? I said, yeah. And again, not wholly odd that he would call just to be checking up on me. So I wasn't sure. And he's like, did you hear? And I was like, oh no, no, I hear what? And he then told me that four officers had been killed in Lakewood. And so at that point, it was just like, oh, gosh, here we go again. It was like I lived in New York City during 9-11 and, you know, there was nothing on that scope or scale, but it felt like a mini 9-11 here. It was so shocking and so devastating. And people really just seeing officers thanked in New York during 9-11 was the first time I think I've seen law enforcement thanked for anything. And then I come out here and I see people showing their support for law enforcement, but it takes you know, line of duty death for them to show it. And that's when I started working with law enforcement. I mean, that's when I started trying to tell the stories through photographs, videos, what have you now this podcast. So how did any officer deal with that? I mean, clearly, you know, I was not even a month out from my incident. So I was still numb to, to a lot. And, you know, you just are grieving and working through everything. I almost think in some ways it was harder for other officers to go through it because to me, I just, I think because I was so new, I didn't know any different. I didn't know the, the decades of, of safety that I was supposed to feel and that I wasn't, you know, not that the, I thought this was normal. I mean, clearly I wasn't, you know, I wasn't super young when I started this job. I wasn't 21 year old that had no life experience. So I wasn't oblivious to what went on in the world. But at the same time, I was like, maybe this is what I signed up for. And I didn't mm. realize it. I do remember the very solid feeling of knowing that I wasn't going to let Tim's killer have any power over me. And he wasn't going to change what I did. And because he um, he was uh, apprehended, ironically, while Tim's memorial was happening. 
and or just wrapping up actually he was apprehended in a, a town a bit south of of seattle and got into a shootout with uh, homicide detectives and uh, was injured but not killed so i had peace of mind if you will that that killer was no longer out there and that i wasn't personally being hunted so i think that was the beginning of my healing and you know i had already decided that i wasn't going to let this person's actions change what i'd worked so hard for because to me that was giving him power that was letting him control me and i just wasn't going to change course unless it was my choice to do and so i think when it came then to the Lakewood Four, even more so, I thought, no, like you you can't let the bad guys right. win, you know? So they may have killed four, but like if they all of a sudden scare all these other officers into leaving this job, they're, they're now winning right. even more. So. so then it brings to mind how it must have felt to sit in courtroom with this guy. When you had to go to trial, the trial took a couple of years. It was a couple of years, right? Before <laughs> it went to trial. It was February, 2015. Oh, that when trial started. This wow. It was that long. Oh. It was a very, very long time. A lot of it was because the suspect was, like I said, he got into the shootout. Bottom line is it, one of the rounds lodged into his spine and it made him paraplegic. So he was in a wheelchair. Being that he was in a wheelchair from doctor's orders, et cetera, he could only sit for, I think it was like maybe two hours at a time. So courts had to recess every two hours or what have you. And so, as you can imagine, um, just even leading up, doing all the trial prep, when one of the people involved can only sit for two hours at a time for any interview or deposition, it just took. I want to say literally twice mm. as long. So that was kind of the reason for the d- long delay in trial. He also, I think, kept switching attorneys, <laughs> if I recall. So what was it like to sit there in the same room? and? You know, the, the first time I, I laid eyes on him was actually in, was in 09 um, at the arraignment. Mm. I went to the arraignment and it was the, the, King County Courthouse, where they do the arraignments, it's a tiny little room, and it was just jam-packed. And I remember going in there, and, and and I remember that was the first time I saw him. And I was, I was worried. I was really worried, like what I was going to feel. And of course, it was very fresh, you know, because this was at his arraignment. So this is we're talking a couple days after he was captured. And you know, I didn't feel anything. Hmm. I, I, he was a stranger. Hmm. He was an absolute stranger. And so fast forward, you know, more than five years, and now I'm in a courtroom. I don't know that I actually even looked at him. He was still a stranger to me. I think in some ways, again, a a, a blessing in disguise that the night of the shooting and the attack, I never saw his face. I never saw who shot us. You know, I didn't have any idea. It was just a car that pulled next to us and just fired off rounds from a, a rifle of all things. There wasn't that connection. And so maybe mm. that's, you know, part, part of that blessing. Yeah. So. Yeah. so then you had to finish your training, right? 
And then did you go back to the East Precinct when you started patrol? No. The department has its protocols that you have to go through when you're involved in a shooting. I had actually asked to go back to the street just prior to the Lakewood officers getting killed. And so things are just kind of chaotic, even though it wasn't our department that was involved. And so I kept trying to go back, but then they said I had to wait for my firearms review board. So it wasn't until after that, that I finally got my date to go back, which was January 1. You know, I actually requested to go back to East Precinct because I wanted to rewrite those memories and I didn't want to have it something that was scary or odd or bad. They decided to put me back right into my second rotation. We do three rotations and they decided to put me up north during days for that rotation. And then my third rotation was at our South Precinct nights. But I did go back January 1. And how did it feel to go back? Oh, um, (laughs) bless my training officer. He was... He was so very gentle and kind with me. He he was driving, the, the officer was driving the first night. And I was just, it was my first time back in a patrol car in uniform since this had happened. And I was ready, but it was, I was nerved. It wasn't scary. It was just, it was just uneasy. And so I was sitting in the passenger seat. It was early, but January 1, early doesn't matter because it's still dark, you know, by the time shift started at 7. And my training officer being just very sweet and kind, I think just wanted to ease me back into things. And so he just did a casual traffic stop and found somebody to to pull over just again to ease me back into this. And so we just, we did it on Aurora. And if you know Aurora, it's a a big kind of shopping district, you know, two or three lanes in each direction, lots of stores on each side lots of street lights and lots of traffic lights, right? So even though eight o'clock at night, dark, still bright with lights. We're just sitting there, side of the road, and all of a sudden from the back, you know, on the side of the road, kind of going around the side of the car is this jogger. The jogger has on normal like leggings that a jogger would have on, headphones like a jogger would have. I mean, everything about him said, I'm a normal person jogging. And I jumped like three feet off my seat because it just startled me because it came from behind us. And my training officer was so stinking sweet because he obviously saw me jump, knew exactly why I was jumping, knew that I was just going to be on edge instead of like laughing or making comment or anything else. He just looks up and he goes, wow, it's really quite a cold night for running, huh? (laughs) And he keeps riding. There were a couple incidents like that, that thankfully I'm capable of laughing about. And I think, again, part of my healing and understanding was being gentle with myself and realizing like, yeah, things are going to be scary and things that normally didn't startle you are going to startle you. And that's all right. Well, you know, I'm sure glad that you stuck through, you know, the Seattle Police Department's had you for 13 years now. You've had a a career that we should talk about, but uh, boy, what a beginning. Yeah, it, it was definitely a beginning. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I see pictures of you getting awards and things like that. And, you know, you're smiling, this big smile, but I have to think you're gr- gritting your teeth because it's like, I remember you said, you know, why are they giving me awards? Oh, it's, 
I mean, honestly, and if you think about it, if you really like wash everything out and think about it, I got awards for living, for surviving, for ducking. I ducked out of the way. That's why I was getting, you know, and it wasn't like I did some great heroic thing or showed this amazing courage that allowed me to survive, if you will. And on top of it, my training officer died and I'm somehow getting an award for living. And so, yeah, it was, it was really, really hard, but I had to reframe my thinking on that and stop thinking it from my perspective and realize that there was a community that was actually reeling and in mourning and they weren't necessarily looking to give me an award to make me feel better. But I think a lot of it was that they needed to do something. And so that's how I try to change my perspective on it to be gracious and, you know, kind of accepting it on behalf of, of Tim, Tim and me, you know, for going through something. Well, and I do want to mention that you have stayed close to Tim's family. You're, for those who don't know, you have remained close. Yes. Tim's immediate family is literally, they're, they're my family at this point, which is, you know, talk about a silver lining. And, you know, they lost a brother that night and, and gained a sister is kind of what we always say. Mm. And, you know, Tim's brother, uh, sister, brother-in-law, and his mother. I mean, I spend, I see them pretty much every holiday. And matter of fact, um, sadly, uh, Tim never got to meet his niece or nephew, but actually his niece, she just had her ninth birthday a couple of weeks ago and she's my goddaughter and, you know, she's, she's my little light. And so it really is, you know, out of something horrifically tragic, we at least are, are happy that we all kind of gained something. Yeah. So, well, and it, it warms my heart to know that you are the one who is going to make it a passion project to have all of these officers have an appropriate memorial like Tim's. So it's a wonderful thing you're doing. And you're right. You know, we all say, including the public, we'll never forget. So I'm glad you're doing this. I don't know why I'd never thought of it before or realized that Tim has this memorial and it is, it's a beautiful memorial that, you know, as I said, the community and, and donors kind of came together, if you will. And it's, it's awesome. But I mean, look at Jose little barber, you know, even Lexi died, you know, just over a year ago. And like, we kind of have some makeshift memorials, but we have nothing that the family can go and visit, nothing that the community can go and visit. And, you know, even Antonio Terry's memorial is, they put it at the site of where he was shot. And so it just, ha- it's a terrible location that doesn't bode well for visiting. And I don't know, it just, it hurt my heart to think about the families. Because a lot of these families of these fallen officers are still so actively involved with the uh, department and with law enforcement and here they lost their loved one and they still give Mm. like oh my goodness like I just and I guess because I have the insider point of view because I am still so close to Tim's family I see 
what it's like to be a family of a fallen officer. Like I can see the insider's mm. point of view firsthand. So I think that's why I just thought I am, I'm such an advocate for Tim's family when they need something or because I, I feel like they have been forgotten at times. And I don't think it's an intentional right. thing, but I think it should be an intentional thing to not yeah. forget is my perspective. And so, you know, I, just kind of feel like I'll go and make enough noise until I can get it to happen. Well, I know you will. <laughs> if you put your mind to it, you will get it done. Part of also what you and I spoke about last time I saw you was that you have taken it upon yourself to discuss with law enforcement the experience of a line of duty death. I believe what you said is it's not something, you know, that's discussed. And I guess if you're recruiting and retaining, you don't want to focus on line of duty deaths. But what is it? Do you go out and you speak with officers or try to help them know what to be prepared for? So part of when the when I'd gone up to Tim's memorial, saw that it wasn't being maintained, et cetera, my squad of detectives went out a couple of days later and we cleaned up the memorial. So we talked about we should have student officers, you know, come in and clean these memorials. And this way they learn that the memorials are there and can pay tribute, if you will. I kind of took that to heart and I thought, that sounds like a great idea. When they're doing their classroom stuff, I steal them for a day. And I actually have decided that I talk very candidly, very, very candidly, very raw to them about what it was like from my perspective to go through this. It dawned on me that you go through, like I said, these 19 weeks of, of academy and this post-academy stuff. And again, the, the, the fire hose, that fire hose never included. So when an officer dies, they have a line of duty death. This is what that means. And you will then go to a memorial service. And this is what it usually will constitute. So nobody ever tells you any of that. You need to kind of be honest with them because you're not doing them any favors. If you're going to tactically tell them how to enter a room and how to handle that situation, then why not tell them how to maybe emotionally guide themselves dealing with what it's going to be like to lose somebody that they know or is on their department or is close to them. I I talk very candidly to these student officers and then I throw them in a van with a bunch of rakes and shovels (laughs) and gloves and we go up, we clean up the memorial and I answer whatever questions they have. And, you know, we just, we, we pay tribute. We, we do exactly what we say we're going to do. We don't forget. Right. Uh, you know, I I, th- I think it's great that you're doing that for them. Sadly, there has been, since Tim, another line of duty death. You mentioned Lexi a few minutes ago. So Officer Lexi Harris was killed a little over a year ago on June 13th, 2021. Yep. And you knew her? Yes, I did. Yeah, she was, uh, you know, people talk about when, when somebody dies, you know, you you always hear about how great that person is. Lexi was literally that person that was talked about that way, even when she was, you know, full of breath and life. She was legit 
one of the best officers we had in this department. And, you know, you, you never want to lose one of your comrades, but I tell you, there was not a person on this department that was not heartbroken mm. about the loss of Lexi. Right. I guess for those who are not from the area, do you want to just briefly say how she was killed? Yeah, I, I don't know much of the, the details. I She had just finished shift. Um, it was about, I think, two or two o'clock or so in the morning. She was on her way home. It was a rainy night or it had rained. And she had on viewed a collision on I-5. And so she got out to assist. And unfortunately, because of the, the darkness and, and the rain and conditions, a motorist struck and killed her. Um, but obviously did not see her. So she was struck and killed. It was uh, pretty devastating. Yeah, it was. It was. And, you know, it one of the vehicles involved in the initial collision oh. she stopped to assist was actually a, um, a U-Haul that was stolen. And the suspects that were in the U-Haul, I think they were wanted felons. I, I can't remember. After she was struck and killed, the suspects from that stolen U-Haul then got into her vehicle and uh, stole her vehicle right. from the scene and left the scene. Very much uh, salt, salt in a wound, yeah. if yeah. you will. So. Well, she seemed pretty incredible. I've never met her, but I mean, from the, the stories I've heard. And then you also had a canine death. Canine officer Jedi, brutal, stabbed uh, with the machete and a knife, right? Yes. Yep. That was uh, January 5th of this year. And um, unfortunately, that that involved a officer involved shooting. Mm. So mm. my unit responded to that scene. Mm. So that was, yeah, that Oof. was gruesome. Oof. You want to tell me about that? Yeah. So uh, you know, and anybody who has known me for like more than five minutes knows that I love dogs. I love dogs more than I love people. Like I, and I just, dogs are, you know, and my dog is just my absolute life. Right. And so everybody in my office knows this as well. So we got called to a shooting scene. I thankfully had been called by one of the uh, CSI detectives that was responding to the scene. And he actually was the one who informed me and said, hey, just so you know, one of our canines got killed on the, on the scene. And so I was grateful because now I had the time as I was driving to the scene to process this and to kind of talk myself into being able to, to handle this. I arrived on scene and um, parked my car. And it was, you can imagine these scenes are chaotic. You know, the, the police tape is way far out. There's media, there's just people everywhere. And so I'm walking into the command post or toward the command post. And my sergeant at the time and lieutenant, they saw me walking and they all of a sudden step off to the side. They grab me and they pull me off to the side. And they said, hey, we need we need to talk to you. And so pretty kind that everybody in my unit knew, like, we got to be careful with Britt on this one. Like this, this one's, you know, not going to be good for her. And so they said, we have canine Jedi. And so 
I said, yeah, I heard. And they said, are you going to be okay? And, and I'll, I'll be honest. The truth is I recused myself from anything in that case that had to do with watching video of Jedi getting killed or anything of hearing or seeing the handler's um, mm. reaction. Cause actually the hand, the handler officer Ducre and I came on the department about the same time we've worked together at different times. And so he's become a, a friend as well. And so I've done multiple, multiple cases with him and Jedi. It was, it was hard on so many levels. There's still plenty of work to do on these cases. I didn't need to be privy to any of the body worn. I didn't need to do any of that. I don't need to cause myself trauma. I was very lucky. My chain of command was kind and let me handle the periphery stuff and, and kind of do that, if you will. Poor Officer Ducray. I mean. Uh, it, it was awful. Yeah. It was awful. And, you know, bless his heart, he did a, a great job. And they asked him if he wanted to do his interview that day or wait or what have you. He wanted to do it. It was just awful. I mean, I just, you know, being in the office that that evening and just, it's one of the times when I worked so hard to remain sympathetic, not empathetic. Mm-hmm. Because anytime like my empathy started to kick in and I started to think about what he's feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, canines are a whole different level. I mean, as a dog lover, mm-hmm. having a canine, a partner that you train with and every day is is with you and you're, he protects you and you protect him. And they live with you. They do. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that, that um, as our canines go home with our right. officers and you always are training and doing stuff with your canine. Oh. Yeah. Oh, such tough stuff. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so we'll, we've talked, let's talk about your job. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm fascinated by force investigation team rather than my trying to explain it, I'll let you explain what it is. So our bread and butter is obviously investigating officer-involved shootings, though we do also respond to what we call CLPD, a type three use of force. So it's what we call high-level use of force that results in grave or substantial bodily harm to the subject or suspect. So it could be as simple as somebody claiming that their their shoulder popped out during some sort of altercation or in a, a broken bone or loss of consciousness, any sort of strike to the head with any object by an officer to a subject. So we respond to a lot of things, but again, the, the shootings are our bread and butter and those are obviously take precedence. Okay, so officer-involved shooting doesn't have to be deadly force. The subject does not have to be deceased. No, it's whenever an officer fires their weapon while on duty. I'm glad that you are on this, in this unit, because, you know, for an officer who has fired his or her weapon, especially if it's, you know, deadly, but it's, it's an emotional time for them. So often the media focuses on the person who's been shot or what have you, but you know, that officer needs some emotional support. They absolutely do. <laughs> you know, and that's, you, you make the very good 
point that just because this is what we are trained to do doesn't mean it's okay. That doesn't mean it, it. we just do it. And TV, they show an officer that gets in a shooting and then the next day they're right back on the street right. and smoking and joking and hanging out with the squad like nothing happened. And it's like, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not even close right. to that. I mean, what the public doesn't understand and think about, if an officer fires their weapon, they are choosing and opting to use deadly force. We are only authorized to use deadly force to save our own lives or that of the public. So it means that we are somehow deeming that there is a life on the line and it is up to us to protect it, whether it's our own, our comrades, or somebody of the public, some stranger to us. That in itself, thankfully, most people, most civilians will never know what it's like to come into an encounter where you're fearing for your life. It's a horrible feeling. I clearly personally know that from what we've talked about. So firing the weapon, everybody gets focused on that portion. You have to think about what led up to that. That's the trauma. That's the hard part. And then God forbid that your actions do result in taking the life of somebody. Even if you're, quote, justified and warranted, and even if everybody understands like, oh, this person fired a gun at you or what have you, you're still taking someone's life. And we are not these heartless people that, you know, are are void of feeling. You took someone's life. Whether it was, again, justified or not, it's never an easy thing. And we as humans aren't created if we're of same sound mind to be okay with taking the life of another human. And so there's so much more wrapped around these shootings than what the public will ever know, because, you know, to no fault of their own, the media doesn't portray that, you know, we don't ever focus on feelings. We focus on facts and I get that. And that's what the media wants to do, even though they don't get their facts right all the time. You know, we don't talk about what the feeling is behind what led up to this and, and the the after result, if you right. will. So you do have to investigate. What's it like for you when you approach an officer who's just been through this? You know, I always, because I respond to the scenes. And so one of the first things I always try to do is go meet up with the officers that are involved because they've been sequestered. Again, it's a very different process than when I went through it. Very, very different. And I always go up at the scene and I try to talk with them. I I always just kind of look into their eyes and I can always kind of tell like where they're at. And my heart always feels for them. Just knowing at that moment that they probably don't even know what they're feeling. Mm. Really, all I do is try to give them some idea of what to expect because that's probably as an officer, one of the most unnerving feelings is not knowing what to expect. I usually try to at least explain the process, let them ask whatever questions they have and give them whatever sense of control back that I can. Is it hard for you to investigate a fellow officer? I mean, no, because I am so proud of the officers that I work with. I mean, some of the things that I see these officers do is just, it's amazing police work. 
And so I'm always super supportive and proud to be able to wear the same patches as these officers. And I'm not also afraid to investigate when something hasn't gone the way it should or to training in the policy and such. And we have had that. We've had officers who have their weapons removed and we've taken their guns and their badges and we've had to read the Miranda. And that wow. is that is not fun. That's it's it's horrible. But it makes me feel good to know we are doing the right thing in, in holding each other accountable because I do highly believe in that. We need to to be honest and truthful and we do need to keep the trust in the public. It can be hard sometimes when across the table you're sitting there asking questions of your equal, if you will, or in some of these people are people that I've worked in a squad with and such, but they respect my side of the job. And I also, you know, I treat them with the utmost respect. And so they, at this point, have realized that this is a process. This is a process that we do. And we really, I believe so much in the product that we put out, that my unit puts out, because we put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours into these investigations. And they are very well written reports and just well documented, well investigated. And so I think that when officers see the final product, which uh, ultimately turns out to be uh, a big PowerPoint that we present to the Firearms Review Board, they're impressed. I think they're really impressed. And I think that it makes them feel good that, you know, we really do a good job of, of telling the incident. And when you interview witnesses, do you find them to be critical of the law enforcement or do they keep do they stick to the facts oh gosh it's all over the place some you can tell just like actually are making up mm. a lot of the information because it just doesn't even match what actually happened but you know some like everybody remembers traumatic events differently and especially somebody who is untrained or is you know, if you think about like a, a civilian witness, they're probably completely unknown, like standing there innocently doing their thing and become aware of an incident going on. And so it's almost like they're behind the eight ball, if you were like, oh, like there's something going on over here. So a lot of times like, people fill in the gap yeah. of, of gaps of like things they can't remember. You know, I don't really fault civilians, but a lot of times, I mean, even if they're supportive, sometimes it's, it's like, well... No, that, that didn't happen, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, I just remember reading or hearing about witnesses being asked, did the suspect act in a threatening manner? And they said no, but it's like you don't know as a civilian what is threatening. It doesn't mean that the person has to be holding a knife over his head about to charge you. It could be a look. It could be a glance. It could be a gesture. Well, and it could also be something that happened before yeah. they were looking. Yeah. Well, and before I let you go, I do want to talk about your time on bikes. As I mentioned, you were on bikes for about three years. Maybe those were some of the fun times. Yes. Loved my years yeah. on bikes. Absolutely loved yeah. them. Any stories or? Oh, gosh. I think some of my best and most memorable times was working bikes. I mean, I worked night bikes for a little over a year, I think it was a year and a half or so. And then I went to day bikes, but got to do so many fun things. I mean, that's when we did a lot of buy busts and what we call C pops. And, you know, we just did a lot of surveillance where we 
arrested just a lot of drug dealers and and bad guys off the streets and being on bikes was just fun because they don't hear you coming and they don't see you coming they don't expect to see you coming and there you are and you know and it's just they try to run but you're on a bike and so it just it just was really good time and you're just a really close-knit I mean anybody who does this job I mean they can speak to the the camaraderie and the, and the love that you get for your squad mates. It's like being in bikes was even more so. It was just, you're so close and you have your your regular partner that you always ride with and, and you just go through so much together. And especially in Seattle where we have, you know, it's not considered a day unless there's a protest of some sort. And so, you know, we constantly were working protests and you know in 2014 we worked the ferguson protests and it was day in and day out and you just you know you just were like in battle together and you were just so sleep deprived too and i just the cold and the wet and really some of of the greatest and most fun days i've had on this department for sure that's great that's great i know one bike officer told me she said that the suspect subject got mad that she snuck up on him and said he, he she should have rung her bell or something. Or I guess you have little horns or something. <laughs> it's, it's like they were mad that she snuck up. Yeah, I'm sure he was mad because they. It's funny because well, we used to drive the Crown Vics. Yeah. Uh, now they have the the PIUs and stuff, but the Crown Vic engine has a very specific sound, and so it's just really funny because whenever like the drug dealers or whoever were doing something they shouldn't be doing. They, they always had the lookout and the lookout just would always listen for that engine. And then, you know, all of a sudden, boom, you come around in a bike and they're like, ah, <laughs> so that was always fun. And then, yeah, the, the running thing I think was probably one of my favorites. Cause I remember us riding up and interrupting a, a drug deal and, and the guy taking off running and my partner riding next to him just barely pedaling as this guy's running his little buns off and my partner looks at him and goes I'm on a bike you can keep running I'm barely looking and it just was so funny to me and I couldn't stop laughing and I just thought this is when it becomes fun yeah well I guess we'll close by asking what drew you to law enforcement oh goodness me you had to do this one I will tell the, the, the truth of the matter is what initially lured me in was an ad on the radio. It just honestly kind of struck me that, huh, I think I could do that. I have a background in marketing and advertising communications, and that's what my degree is in. And so I did the world of, of advertising. I then got myself in the fitness industry doing uh, triathlon coaching and, and indoor cycling and such. And honestly, not that I really realized it at the time, but it kind of mixed my two worlds together. I actually really love to write and I really love, you do a lot of writing in this job and, you know, it's physical. And so it kind of took the, my two worlds and, and melded them together. I think by nature, uh, interestingly enough, and this is something that came after the fact that I realized I'm kind of just a natural protector. Mm. And so I really want to think at the end of the day, you know, I know I'm not going to go out and save the world and, but I hope that I leave it a little bit better than at least when I came in. So, so in (laughs) taking it all together, it's all been worth it. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And even through 
the last couple of years that have been horribly hard on my mm. department, especially where we got emaciated and I, and I, you know, a lot of my friends left. I couldn't imagine doing anything else because again, at the end of the day, I feel like I'm still giving. I just don't ever want to be a taker in this world. And, you know, I'm not doing, you know, I'm never going to be rich. I want to think that when I, when I leave this planet, like at least my, my little mark will be, will be made some way, somehow. Well, thank God for you. Thank God you chose law enforcement. Thank God you chose Seattle. You're not from here. We should mention you were from the Boston area, right? Yep. Yeah, just north of Boston. Yeah, East, East yeah, Coast. <laughs> me too. Well, Britt, thank you for being you. Thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you for this. This is awesome. And, you know, you keep thanking us. I have to thank you because honestly, you know, and, and that's why when you did the, the photo project, I just was so struck by somebody that has no connection directly to law enforcement is is reaching out and, and doing and it's like you said until somebody gets killed there's a line of duty death and that's when we get the thank yous and it has to be something horrible and you have just always kind of kept going even during good times turbulent times through it all and you know we always talk about the silent majority and it's so awesome that you're not silent and I can't thank you enough oh, for not being silent because I wish there was more of you because you don't know the influence you have on people like me. It reminds us of why we do this, that we are appreciated. And again, if you do, if you do policing for the thank yous, you're never going to survive. You're never going to survive. But to know that there's people like you out there is just you know, it's so heartwarming. And again, thank you for not being silent. Well, thank you. That is why I do this. Thank you. I do want to add in closing, when I did this interview with Britt, it was in September. I hadn't really anticipated I would be finishing production on it as we come upon the anniversary of the murders of Officer Brenton and the Lakewood officers. As I said in the episode, these were the incidents that inspired me to step up for law enforcement. I have been working with law enforcement ever since. I want to acknowledge those of you with the Seattle and Lakewood Police Departments, as well as neighboring Pierce County Sheriff's Department, who lost Deputy Kent Mundell, who was shot in a domestic violence incident and died on December 28, 2009, just a month after the Lakewood officer murders. These were very dark days for these departments, for all law enforcement throughout the region, and for the community members like me who mourned with you. I know this time of year brings back a flood of emotions. What is important, as Britt says, is that we make sure we always remember. To that end, I will post a link to the Officer Down Memorial page, which has all the line of duty deaths for the Seattle Police Department. I will also include the Lakewood officers and Deputy Mundell's memorial pages. I want to make sure I acknowledge all of you in law enforcement, wherever you are. As you know, we seem to be losing officers on a daily basis. I know all of you have your own stories of loss in your career, perhaps on your department, or within your family. To the officer you have lost, thank you for your service. You are gone, but you are not forgotten.